This is what uh, Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out and entered the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived at the twelve, and when they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and said to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, it is, the, it is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And then he took a cup after giving thanks and gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away because it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Well, truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would illumine our hearts today to not only understand the things in this text, but to uh, delight in them, knowing that it points us to Jesus, who is our Redeemer, who lived and died and rose for us. And may we give glory to him and how we respond to his word. And it's in Christ's name that I ask this. Amen. Well, they say that the devil is in the details. Uh, it is an idiom that uh, refers to something that may seem simple, but can easily be uh, derailed by the, the, the fine details of it. Um, it. The purpose of it is to get the individual to look beyond the, the big picture of what is happening and pay attention to the details because it is the details that can help or hinder the mission of the big picture. In other words, the details are very, very important. 
But why is it that the devil is in the details? Uh, it, it probably has something to do with the fact that it's usually referring to something negative and how that one little detail that you didn't necessarily plan was the thing that, uh, that threw everything off course. But why can't we follow the, the wise words of the former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, when she said, uh, referring to the finer points of legislation, that uh, the devil and the angels are in the details? Well, we can't follow that either because none of those are, are very good and neither of them are good because neither of them are true. When we look at our passage today, Mark helpfully guides us into the understanding that Jesus is worthy of both our trust uh, in the good details of our lives as well as those hard parts of our lives. He is worthy of our trust because he is intricately involved in every detail of our lives, from the most minute to the most important. He has intimately involved himself also in the tragic and the sad events of our lives. And every bit of it, every detail is meant to focus our eyes on him and his redemptive glory. And today in this, point, in this passage, we will be pointed to that. So let's dig in and see how every aspect of our lives, including our sin, uh, is put together to form the story of God's redemptive work within our hearts. The first thing we need to see is that we ought to trust that God is in the details. Trust that God is in the details. When we look at the surface of verses 12 through 16, uh, we, uh, we, we, it, we think it seems innocuous. I mean, it's a very run-of-the-mill narrative. It's, a, it, it's very clear uh, that uh, we, if we're reading in our Bible reading plan, we might just read it and think nothing of it. And if we do think something of it, all we might see it as is supporting details that are leading up to the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, but if we look closely at these verses... Uh, we'll see that Mark uses these verses for a much bigger purpose, not only in the passage uh, as a whole, but for us to understand what life is like under the sovereignty and the rule of Jesus Christ. These five verses function as this key that unlocks the rest of this passage as well as a, a treasure trove of trust that we can and should have in the Lord. This passage uh, takes place on the Thursday of Passover week for, for Jewish folks. Um, though the actual Passover meal is, is celebrated only one night, this one night actually kicks off uh, an entire seven days of a Jewish festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it commemorates uh, the time when God rescued the Hebrews uh, from the slavery of the Egyptians, when the angel of the Lord uh, went and killed the firstborn of Pharaoh and all of Egypt, but he passed over death uh, of the firstborn of Israel because a lamb had been slaughtered in their place, and the blood of that lamb was, was wiped over their doorway. So when the Lord came through with his destructive power, he would see that there was something that shed its, uh, shed its blood in place of the firstborn within that house. 
the unleavened bread then recalls how they had to make unleavened bread because it was going to happen very quickly. And when all of these events happened, they could not waste time when God called them out of Egypt. So they must have quickly baked bread. And for the most part, the disciples were sort of this ragtag group of ragamuffins that would uh, uh, fly by the seat of their pants. But the Passover was far too important to not have at least some sort of formal plans for. They couldn't just crash at someone's Passover meal, so they went to Jesus, who always seemed to have a plan of where they should go and, and what they uh, they should do. And he certainly did in this instance. Uh, verse 13, we find that Jesus's plan was not general. It was, in fact, very specific. Look in verse 13. So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, uh, it, uh, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples went out to enter the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So it's not as if this specificity here that Jesus gives is unprecedented. These verses are very, very close to what happened with Jesus just a few days before on the Sunday of Passover week when he was going to enter into Jerusalem, and he told his uh, couple of his disciples, hey, go up uh, over on this hill. There's going to be this random donkey up there, and you're going uh, to bring him down here. The owner's going to question you, and you're just going to simply say that the, that the master, the Lord, ha needs this donkey, and he will return it to you. And sure enough, they go up this hill. There's this donkey, and there's this guy, and he questions them, and they bring this donkey down to Jesus. Now, you could make the argument that Jesus has prearranged all of this. That is certainly possible, but the logic of it is actually quite absurd. It would require that Jesus scheduled this man to have a jar of water and that the two disciples would meet him at the uh, exact place at the exact right time in order for this uh, transaction to happen. If it had been prearranged, then why would Jesus not just simply say, hey, you know, we need to uh, go in and celebrate the Passover, and I got this, this buddy of mine who's got a house, an upper room, it's all ready, so let's go to Jerusalem and let's make this happen. Jesus doesn't do this. Also, if it had been prearranged, the tone that Jesus uses here would be awfully deceptive. Uh, was he wanting to make them think that he is certainly omniscient and powerful, but yet he's just sort of tricking them by, you know, I've planned it ahead of time, but I want to make you think that I'm powerful here. And that'd be absolutely contrary to the sinless nature of Jesus. It certainly can't be chalked up to coincidence. It's too specific. The chances of all of these things happening at that exact moment when Jesus said it would happen are astronomically small. Think about it. Jesus sends two disciples into a town where 300,000 people are staying for the week in order to celebrate Passover. To find a man carrying a jar of water. And uh, uh, not only would finding this specific guy be like finding a needle in a haystack, but it's also incredibly rare to see a man carrying a jar of water anyway. For a man to carry a jar of water... Uh, 
would say that he's either a slave or a, a woman, and we know that can't happen. And so here, uh, it's just this rare instance of a man carrying a jar of water. And follow that, they go to the house, and the owner of the house not only has an upper room, but he has it furnished and ready. The specifics of the Seder meal are ready to go. And what happens in verse 16? Mark tells us that the disciples went out, they entered the city, and they found that it was precisely as Jesus had told them. Folks, this was no coincidence. Jesus, in his uh, divine knowledge, power, and in his providence, sovereignly orchestrated every single one of these details to come together. The idea that this is God's pre-planned uh, blueprint undergirds the rest of this entire passage. And it undergirds every single aspect of your life. And Mark is telling us that this is a good thing. There is no more comforting doctrine than the doctrine of divine sovereignty, knowing that every detail in your life, uh, will, uh, knowing that detail will keep you from despair when the tempests of life will come to wash you away unless you have a firm grip on the sovereignty of God as well as his goodness in that sovereignty you will have a much harder time seeing the world in all of its color God's sovereignty is the glue that holds our souls together when everything else seems to fall apart. So trust him. Trust that he is in the details. Trust that even when times are tough, that he is good and that he is working all the details for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. The idea of trusting in God's hand is in the details is especially important as we look into the darkness of what else happened on this Monday, Thursday. And that leads us into our second point, is that we need to know what we are capable of. We need to know what we are capable of. In light of the fact that verse 17 introduces the comforting doctrine that God is in the details, it by no means negates the fact that you and I are responsible for how we think, uh, act, and talk in relation uh, to God's holiness and what he desires for us. We live in a world that wants and demands every sort of privilege that you can possibly think of, and it rejects any responsibility that comes with it. For those of us that are millennials uh, on down to boomers, when things don't go our way, our inclination is to blame someone else. For those of you that are younger than us, the inclination in the spirit of the day is to blame the structures and the systems that cause our despair. But here, instead of looking inward and seeing how we have contributed to the situation, and how to take responsibility for it, or more positive, what can we bring to the table to bring some sort of good to redeem uh, this solution? Instead, we point fingers, and we demand that justice and reparation happen 
out there, that nothing bad is in here and everything bad is out there. Either way, we're naturally inclined to reject responsibility and embrace privilege. This is shown chiefly in how we approach our fallenness. There aren't many people here or in this world that are delusional enough to believe that they aren't even at least a little bit sinful. Um, Even the most unrepentant, narcissistic pagan will at least admit that they aren't perfect, that there are flaws. And we all have different areas of, of struggle and, uh, and things that we're prone to. However, when we recognize that struggle, that, uh, uh, that we struggle in one or two particular areas, what we tend to do is view our sinfulness only through the lens of those one or two things. So, for example, if you are one who struggles with uh, the, the sin of gluttony, you are going to be hypersensitive to those situations around you that might look as if someone is overindulging. And you may be more judgmental towards that person, and especially towards yourself, if you are falling into that again. You will view yourself as more spiritually uh, and morally pure when you're in a good season of handling that sin, and you will look at yourself as the dirtiest of sinners when you slip up that one particular time. And the same is true with someone that might have body image issues or might have an addiction to porn. It is the exact same thing. You will be hypersensitive to the smallest reminders of those things, overly judgmental, and your sense of goodness will be based not on God's grace, but on how good you are doing in your particular battle. Now, the, the problem with that is that when you're hyper-focused on one or two of those particular issues, you are completely unaware to the thousands of other things that you are uh, missing the mark in. You might be thankful that you're not cheating on your spouse, but you're completely blind to the fact that your bad attitude and condescending nature is destroying your relationship. If you want to be a productive member of the kingdom of Christ, one of the best things that you can do for yourself is convince yourself that you are capable of much greater and more destructive sin than you are aware of. That might sound harsh to some of you, but let me remind you that the Christian life is war. We don't get the luxury of going back to the barracks to rest because the enemy is waiting in the barracks to tempt us there as well. We must live in a wartime mentality. And part of that wartime mentality is accepting that given the right circumstance, with the right variables, with the right emotional status, and the right opportunity, you are capable of great destruction. Dave Carter is a Christian counselor who specializes in affair recovery, wrote in his book, in uh, Anatomy of an Affair, he writes, 40 years ago, that's a long time for a career, I started listening to stories of unfaithfulness in marriage. Most of the people I've counseled in their recovery had thought that they would be uh, immune to betraying their spouse. At least they never married thinking that they would do that. 
few realized that they were even susceptible to falling into the arms of someone that they weren't married to, or even thought it possible that they would come close. But in verses 17 through 21 here, we find that the disciples are just as blind to their potential as you and I. Look in verse 17. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be distressed and say to him one by one, Surely not I. I'm not so sure that this is a question as much as it is a statement. These disciples had a high amount of confidence that they were conscientious, but a low amount of personal awareness. And in this sense of confusion is heightened by the cryptic nature of what Jesus is saying here. He points out that, it, that this person is, is the one who he is eating with. Who's eating with him? Everybody's eating with him. So everybody here is suspect. It doesn't get any clearer when he goes on in verse 20 and says, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. Now you think that'd be a clarifying statement in, in the Gospel of Mark anyway, but it's not. Everyone had dipped their bread in the bowl. It was a custom of the Seder meal. Now, if you remember from last week, we as the readers got a clue that this is specifically pointing to Judas Iscariot, who already has plotted with the leaders to turn Jesus over. But notice that Mark doesn't deliberately name drop Judas here because he wants us to see what the disciples are blind to and capable of. Judas may technically betray Jesus, but everyone else does too. When Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there is a threat that they may be arrested as well, and when Jesus is tried and executed, the disciples do not stay with him. They flee as fast as they can to get away from that kind of danger, denying their association with him. And so uh, Jesus indicts them down on verse 27. Uh, it says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away because it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now this is a direct reference to Zechariah 13.7 where we see again the juxtaposition of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Who will strike the shepherd? It's clear. God will strike the shepherd. Who goes running? Well, the disciples, they head for the hills, the sheep. God will strike the sun, and the disciples will get out of Dodge. And this is ironic given the fact that Peter, who is the spokesperson for uh, the twelve, uh, echoes the sentiment of them all in verse 29. Notice what he says. Peter told them, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Well, truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. But Peter kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Friends, don't be so sure 
that you will not one day go in directions that you right now detest. Pride and fear are powerful bedfellows. And Proverbs 16, 18 tells us that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. It's not a bad thing to keep in mind of what you are capable of, and it is far more than you think. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. You are always potentially one step away from destruction. Instead, we must, what we must do is always bear in mind our weakness. But as we do, we can take comfort and we can take shelter and have confidence in the all-sufficient grace of Jesus. Where we are weak, He is strong. When we recognize our failures, our propensities, our struggles, and look to His strength, there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Left to ourselves, we would be completely destroyed. But as it is, Jesus upholds us with His righteous, omnipotent hand, and it is there that we move to our final point, and that is that we need to rest in Jesus' love despite our failures and shortcomings. Rest in Jesus' love despite all those things. And so the, the, the Lord's Supper is uh, a very prominent uh, part of the liturgy of the church. And it can easily make us want to divorce this section from the rest of what's happening in these verses. But this little paragraph in verses 22 through 25 has little to do with the institution of the Lord's Supper, how to set it up and its mandate, and more to do with the meat uh, between the buns of a Markin sandwich, where he has two ideas that are on, top, uh, are on the top and the bottom, and then there's the meat here. And that is where we find the Lord's Supper here. It is the part of the narrative that serves to counter the negative aspects in the paragraph above and the paragraph below. Notice that it highlights the grace of Jesus in spite of our epic failures to love and trust Him as we ought. Look with me beginning in verse 22. It says, uh, As they were eating, He took bread, He blessed it, and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. So Mark's gospel is widely regarded as the earliest gospel that was written of the four. So the details here are a little, little sparse, but I think that is also by design. From what we can clearly see here is that Jesus is talking figuratively about what is going to happen in the next 24 hours in relation to God's plan to redeem the world. Jesus' body, like the bread, will be broken for them. And he is asking them to receive him and his work just as they would the bread, to internalize it and let it nourish you spiritually. Then in verse 23, he goes on. 
Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Again, we must calibrate the doctrines of Rome here. Jesus is not saying that this literally turns into blood. He is not changing Christianity into some weird vampire religion. He is instead pointing to the fact that, he, that his blood would be spilled for them. And this wine, it's red, just as his blood is red. And you can see that it was poured out in an exodus fashion. He is the Lamb of God who would be sacrificed and whose blood signifies to the angel of death that death has to pass over the people that are covered by the blood of the Lamb because one has died and taken the punishment in their place. Those who are covered by it are set free from the bondage of sin and death in a much greater way than the Israelites were freed from slavery of Egypt so long ago. And so what the Lord's Supper signifies then is the remedy for the rest of the passage. Only in the person and the work of Jesus, the gospel, are we able to truly live in light of God's plan and promise. It's only in the gospel that we can come to terms with who we are, what we've done, and what we know we're capable of. It is only in the gospel that we can avoid the pit of despair that comes with trying and failing and trying and failing again, again, and again, and again, and again. Only in the gospel can we be relieved of a guilty conscience that continues to attack us day after day. Only in the gospel can we live freely as God created us to. Only in the gospel can we take joy in the fact that God is in the details, working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so here in this passage, he's giving a farewell address to his disciples by proclaiming victory Verse 25, truly I, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This doesn't mean that when he was resurrected that he wouldn't enjoy a, a, a cup of wine, which was customary for them after his resurrection, but it would be that he would not share in the Passover again until it is transformed into what the New Testament calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, a feast for all who are called by Christ after everything in heaven and on earth are reconciled together and made new. Friends, that table and that cup are set for you. All you need to do is rest in His love despite who you are despite what you've done and what you were capable of. The devil is not in the details. God is in the details. 
from beginning to end. And this is good news because you and I are capable of more than we realize. And that is good news because he is using the details of our lives to point us back to him, to bring us back to him, and for us to rest in him. Will you today loosen your grip on the details of your life and your self-sufficiency and entrust your entire life and being to his sovereign care. Let's pray.